Last week, uh, we celebrated the resurrection together. Uh, The fact that Jesus Christ was really, actually, truly dead, and then he really, actually came back to life. Uh, Let let me do this one last thing as well. Children's Church, you are dismissed. Um, If you are uh, first grade and below, uh, Children's Church offering is going on right now. That's what we celebrated last week, the resurrection. Jesus was dead, and then he came back to life. Um, And in doing so, accomplished salvation on behalf of his people. He offered the perfect sacrifice for sin and then conquered death uh, through rising from the grave. Now, if I were telling that story, that would be the place I'd stop. I mean, you've kind of, you know, that's the culmination, right? Doesn't get any better than that, does it? But the story of Jesus does not simply end with his resurrection. Jesus did not simply disappear after he is brought back from the grave. In fact, according to uh, chapter 1 of the book of Acts, Jesus actually spent 40 days on this earth before ascending to the Father. For 40 days, Jesus was here. But doing what? What was he up to? What was Jesus doing on the 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension? That's actually what we are going to spend some time looking at over the next couple of weeks. Uh, Today we start a a new sermon series entitled, Life After Death, the Ministry of the Resurrected Jesus. Because during those 40 days, what we find is the resurrected Jesus appearing to and ministering to particular people. People with particular needs. People who are grappling with particular feelings and experiences. And the reason we're going to do this is because the ministry that Jesus accomplishes during those 40 days is the exact same ministry that Jesus continues to accomplish, even now, right now, by the work of his Spirit, in and through particular people with particular needs, people grappling with particular experiences and feelings. Today we're going to look at Jesus' ministry to one person, the first person to see the risen Jesus, Mary Magdalene. A person who, as familiar as we might be with with her name, we actually know surprisingly little about her. Some have tried to kind of collapse her into the the sinful woman who washed Jesus' feet with her hair, Luke 7. But that's not Mary Magdalene. It's not what it says in Scripture. But here's what we do know. Here's what we know about Mary Magdalene. Magdalene was not her last name. Uh, She uh, was Mary from Magdala, a small little fishing village off the Sea of Galilee. We know that according to Luke 8, that, that she was someone who had seven demons cast out by Jesus. She wasn't simply an immoral woman. She was someone who was impacted by spiritual forces that, that we do not completely understand in our modern, enlightened age. But, but forces that Scripture acknowledges to be real. And she has been liberated from these forces, by Jesus. And we know that she, along with several other women, they traveled with Jesus in the twelve, and and they assisted him and provided for Jesus and the disciples out of their means. That's what we know about Mary Magdalene, all of which pointed to the fact that this woman loved Jesus. She had a deep affection for Jesus, so much so that the suggestion has been made, most notably uh, of late by Dan Brown, the Vichy Code, all that kind of stuff, that the relationship between the two was, was romantic in nature. But our tendency to, to sexualize everything misses the point 
which is that Mary has found in Jesus someone that not only set her free, but has satisfied her soul in a way that only God himself could do. Even if she doesn't completely understand what she's experienced, Mary has met God face to face in the person of Jesus. But in the passage that we're about to read, we find Mary grappling with the fact that this one that she loved is gone. And so with that said, let us take a look at our New Testament readings found on page 12 in your bulletin. It's from the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, and then 10 through 18. Hear the word of the Lord. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. And then to verse 10, And then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she stood to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, She said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I am not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to the Father, to my Father and to your Father to my God, and to your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Dear Jesus, I read this text, and it seems like we're walking on hallowed ground here. Um, We know all that you're word is, is inspired by you, and yet there's something extremely profound that we just read about. And Father, I pray that, that as we reflect on it for a few minutes this morning, that, uh, that you would use your word uh, to pierce our heart, to give us eyes to see who you really are and how much you love uh, your people, and that you would encourage us and strengthen us for the journey ahead. Help us. We'll know that if any of that happens, Lord, your spirit was at work here. So work, we pray, all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you have been around Grace Community Church for uh, any period of time, uh, today has the potential to be a bit of a strange Sunday, right? And and just to let you know, my my general mode of operation um, is to acknowledge elephants, in the room, rather than pretending they're there, or, or in this case, that 
who's not in the room, right? And so while I don't want to overplay this and belabor the point, I I can't help but think that all of us feel a certain sense of loss with the Turkey family not being with us this morning. People who matter to us are are no longer with us in the same sense. And, And it hurts, which is precisely what what loss does, right? It hurts, particularly the loss of something precious. It can hurt so much, in fact, that, that, that the ache in your soul begins to spill over into your body. That you're not just emotionally or spiritually or psychologically hurt, but, but you hurt. The term brokenhearted conveys this feeling well. Did you physically hurt because of what's going on inside of you emotionally? This is where Mary is. She's at the tomb of Jesus the moment that the Sabbath regulations will allow her to be there. And she is not grieving with a stiff upper lip. She is distraught. She is weeping and wailing uncontrollably over the loss that she has experienced. And it's important to point out here that, that she is not functioning, functioning as a rational person would. She told this gardener that, that she's going to carry a dead body. Show me where he is, I'll take him away. To where? I doubt she knows. I doubt she knows how that's going to even work out, which speaks to something about being brokenhearted. It's not intellectual. It's not disappointment. It's not confusion. We're going to talk about that next week. Brokenhearted means something much, much deeper. And some of us have been there before. Some of us are there right now. And this sense of loss and Jesus' ministry to those who have experienced loss, that's what I want to focus our attention on this morning in a message I've entitled, Good News for the Brokenhearted. And there are three different aspects of Christ's ministry to this Mary from Magdala that I want to spend a few minutes reflecting on this morning. Here's your three points. First, we see that Jesus' ministry to her is patient. Second, we see that Jesus' ministry to her is personal. And third, we we see that Jesus' ministry to her propels her. All starts with P. That's That's not normal for me, but... You know, if it's helpful. And I'll explain the propels thing as we get there. First, Jesus' ministry to her is patient. Chapter 20 of John's Gospel, what we just read, it's not until verse 16 before Mary finally comes to the realization that Jesus is alive and standing right in front of her. Everything before that is just build up to this moment where she cries out, Rabboni, teacher. And when I read that, the question that comes to mind is, why does it take so long? Why not just come out with it, Jesus? Why the cloak and dagger? Why the mystery? Why not just show up and say, I'm here, I'm alive, I rose from the dead, I'm alive, everybody, you see me? Why, why make Mary go through being questioned by the angels first and then not recognizing Jesus, assuming he's the gardener, and then being questioned by Jesus, and then breaking down, and then, and then finally realizing who she's talking to? Why not just come out with it? Now, of course, you could blame that on the, on the gospel writer. Maybe John's just trying to you know, build some suspense into the story. 
But I submit that there's more going on here. Because when the omniscient God, the God who knows all, sees all, understands all, starts asking questions of human beings, starts asking questions to to us, it's important to keep in mind that those questions are not for his benefit. He knows the answer. The question is for the one being questioned. Who are you looking for? Jesus is up to something by not just coming out with the reality of his resurrection. One of the more difficult internal conflicts that that I've experienced as a parent is the question of when to intervene. When to intervene. When my child feels sadness or frustration or disappointment or hurt. Because in this question, when to intervene... I'm essentially navigating between two impulses within myself, right? On the one hand, there's the recognition that, that as a parent, part of this role is to prepare this child for the disappointment and hardships and the realities of life. That to allow them to experience something unpleasant and endure that is formative and good. That, 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 I can't save them from every single difficulty. I can't just manage their feelings. But I have to be willing to tell my kid, no, with the full understanding that they may throw a temper tantrum. Because you know that if you don't do this, it's not going to play itself out in the long run. You know that deep down, if you give in to your children every time they're unhappy, you're only feeding a monster. Sometimes literally. Um... When our youngest is is demanding Taco Bell for the fourth time this week, or the fourth time today, um, perspective kicks in, and and you you embrace the fact that I cannot, in good conscience, give this kid more Taco Bell. Can't do it. And And yet, there's also the instinct to provide for your children, to meet their needs and even their desires. To protect them from from what's unpleasant or painful, whatever. To to shield them from disappointment, hardship, the realities of life. But you want to intervene when when you see them going through sadness, loneliness, anger. You want to stop it for, for, for them. You want to stop them from having to feel those feelings. You want to fix it, especially if, if you're a fixer. Some of you in this room. You're fixers. You just want to get it fixed. We want the problem solved so we can then go back to business as usual. A while back, I came across a, a book that, that's kind of all the rage in certain circles by a number of colleagues and, and friends. The book's entitled The Voice of the Heart. Raise your hand if, if you're familiar with this book, The Voice of the Heart. Anyone? anyone? Okay. It's helpful. Um, it's written by a counselor type out of Nashville, a guy named Chip Dodd. And the book's all about feelings, which some people love to talk about, others, eh, maybe not so much, but um, the premise of the book is that the feelings we have, whether we're talking about sadness or guilt or anger or shame or whatever, all of these, even the ones we might not typically think, are actually gifts. In the same way that, that, that the physical manifestation of getting sick points to a deeper body, in our, in, in our, deeper problem, I mean, in our, in our body, 
Our feelings are gifts as well that, that, that expose what's going on within our hearts as we interact with a broken world. Which, of course, is not the way that, that most of us feel about feelings, myself included. Because the way I tend to think about feelings is this way. There are good feelings and there are bad feelings. And what we as believers are supposed to do in light of the fact that, that you know, God's in control and God's going to use all things for good and Jesus loves us and, and we have the fruit of the Spirit, which, you know, first one's joy, is to highlight the good feelings and suppress the bad ones. Accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative. Now, on the surface, on the surface that, that could seem, you know, spiritual and sounding and pious even. But that's not what we see in the Bible. In the Bible, we already saw it in our call to worship. The, the psalmist writing about God's concern for the broken hearted. Those who have experienced this type of ache in their soul. What we find throughout the Psalms even are God's people being honest about their reality, their circumstances, even their feelings in light of who God has revealed himself to be and what he's promised. And those emotions, those feelings are not always positive. Even about God, they're not always positive. Why is Jesus standing at a distance in this moment? Because he's letting Mary experience loss. He is letting her feel her feelings. And he's not doing so to be cruel. Grieving, hurting, feeling sadness. This is not a a sign of of a lack of faith. It's a sign of being human. And the fact that, that Jesus doesn't immediately reveal himself shows that there's value in what's taking place here. There's value in the morning. There's value in our feelings. There's value in this hurt. There's value in processing what's taking place. To, to borrow from Psalm 23, there's value in the valley. Because in the valley, God is doing some of his best work. Jesus is not standing on the sidelines disappointed that she's not conveying more faith. God gives his people the grace and space to work through loss rather than just suppress that loss, which takes time. This is a process. Perhaps for some it takes a lifetime. This process is not instantaneous, and while God may be a fixer in the larger scheme of things, He takes his time. He even gives us the room to take our time as well. Jesus' ministry is patient. But not only that, Jesus' ministry is personal. This is the second point for the day. His personal. We aren't entirely sure why Mary is kept from realizing who Jesus is initially. Perhaps it was too dark. Perhaps it was too light. Perhaps her eyes are full of tears. Perhaps she was just prevented from seeing him somehow, but it really doesn't matter. In verse 16, Jesus shakes her out of her grief by simply saying her name. And in saying her name, everything about her reality changes. Now, you might be thinking, well, what else was he going to call her, right? You know, hey, you, um, I mean, what's the big deal, right? But by saying her name, 
Jesus is doing something more than just getting her attention. He is ministering to her specifically as a particular individual with particular pain. Right now, Jesus is not doing ministry for the masses. He's not preaching to 5,000 people. He's talking to one human being. A human being who has lost what mattered more to her than anything else. Her life is falling apart And the God of the universe utters her name. Why does that matter? It matters because her pain matters to Jesus. And if her individual pain matters to Jesus, then I would argue that our individual pain matters to Jesus as well. Do we believe that? Do you believe that Jesus cares about your pain, your hurt, your loss individually? Maybe that's never crossed your mind. Or maybe you struggle to believe that's, that's true. I mean, the sheer volume of people in the world, you know, could make us question that, right? And there's several billion people on the planet. Jesus got a lot on his plate, right? Um, so maybe in some broader sense, Jesus cares about my pain. He he cares about humanity's pain. He's not indifferent to mine. But but in a world with so much pain, so much injustice, so much suffering, there's ought to be always somebody that's got a little bit worse than me, right? I mean, it almost feels wrong to complain sometimes. The thought being, well, at least I'm not going through through that. Buck up, get some perspective. Recently, I came across an individual who, who challenged that line of thinking for me uh, a great deal. The guy's name is Jerry Sitzer. He's a professor of Christian history and spirituality at Whitworth University in Spokane, Washington. Back in 1996, Jerry Sitzer was traveling with his family, um, four kids, his wife, his mother, and they were involved in a head-on collision with a drunk driver. It resulted in the death of, of his mother, his wife, and his daughter. The book where he, he documents his processing of this is called A Grace Disguised. In the book where he, he, he encounters just unfathomable loss, loss that seems beyond the pale, he writes this. Catastrophic loss of whatever kind is always bad. Only bad in different ways. It is impossible to quantify and to compare. The very attempt we often make in quantifying losses only exacerbates the loss by driving us to two unhealthy extremes. On the one hand, those coming out on the losing end of the comparison are deprived of the validation they need to identify and experience the loss for the bad thing that it is. Their loss is dismissed as unworthy of attention and recognition. On the other hand, those coming out on the winning end convince themselves that not only uh, that no one has suffered as much as they have, and no one will ever understand them, and no one can offer lasting help. They are the ultimate victims. He writes, whose loss is worse? The question begs the point. Each experience of loss is unique, each painful in its own way, each as bad as everyone else's, but also different. No one will ever know the pain I've experienced because it is my own. 
Just as I will never know the pain you have experienced. What good is quantifying loss? What good is comparing? According to Sitzer, all people suffer loss. Being alive means suffering loss. The book of James puts it this way. Count it all joy, my brothers, when, not if, but when, you encounter trials of various kinds. Various kinds. Implying that, that, that though not all trials are the same, they're not. They may look different. Not all pain is the same. Not all loss is the same. But there is legitimacy given to the different types of trials, the different types of loss, the different types of suffering that we encounter. But more than that, not only is our feelings of loss legitimate, there's someone who knows our name. Earlier in our service, we read from from John 10, where, where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, and my sheep hear my voice. Our shepherd Jesus, he knows our name, which means that Jesus Christ cares for your pain. And he speaks to us as one who rose victoriously over our enemies. He speaks as one who who promises a future that one day every tear will be dried and all will be made right, and that neither death nor life, angels or rulers, things present or things to come, powers, heights, depths, anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love uh, that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. That though our pain is real, it is not ultimate. But not only does Jesus offer us hope of a glorious future, long term, he offers us comfort in the present as well, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our loss, in the midst of our broken hearts. He ministers to us as one who has suffered as well. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, Isaiah says. He suffered loss by taking our sin upon himself. That doesn't take our experiences away, but it can give us hope in the middle of it. How? How does the resurrected Jesus the reality of his resurrection give us hope today. With financial problems, marital problems, kid problems, um, grieving the loss of a loved one, how does the resurrected Jesus give us hope? How does it speak directly into the pain and suffering that you bring into this room today? I don't know. I'm not omniscient, and to borrow from Sitzer, I don't, I don't know the specifics of what it's like to go through what you particularly have gone through. But Jesus does. And the reality is that if we believe in a God who can raise the dead and who gives his Holy Spirit to his followers and promises to be with them to the end of the age and is at work now, even in the most horrific of circumstances, and reigns supremely over creation, then that has implications for our life now. That can give us hope even now. It can rescue us from cynicism, despair, bitterness. As we move forward, which doesn't invalidate our hurt, it doesn't gloss over our hurt, it doesn't pretend that our hurt doesn't exist. 
but it allows us to move forward. And this moving forward actually gets to our last point for the day. Jesus' ministry propels her forward. You know, a great deal of ink has been spilled over attempting to understand verse 17. Jesus' words to Mary, you know, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. You know, at first glance, it almost reads as if, you know, Jesus can't be physically touched right now. For some reason, you know, physical contact is off limits. It's prohibited in this suspended state for 40 days or something like that. Which, which cannot be true, right? Because last week, we saw Jesus interacting with Thomas, the same chapter, where he says what? Put your hand in the nail marks. Put it in my side. And the fact that Thomas didn't necessarily do it is irrelevant. The bottom line was he could. Now, some commentators have, have throughout church history, have, you know, made the argument, you know, Jesus is essentially distancing himself from Mary Magdalene, Right? Their relationship has changed. Jesus is now in his resurrected, glorified body, and, and we, can't, we can't be friends anymore. At least not the same way. Frankly, I think that's absolute nonsense. Because it runs counter to the whole spirit of the passage. What Jesus is doing here is telling Mary not to cling to him because Mary is a bit of a hugger. And in light of what you're going to need to do, you can't just stay with me this way forever. you got something to do, Mary, which is to go and tell the disciples about what she's seen. She's not letting go of Jesus, but there's work to be done. I want to walk very, 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 very softly here on this. I think back to another story of, of another Mary, sister of Martha. Angered her sister. Why? Because Mary is, is just sitting at the feet of Jesus. She's back doing the dishes, and she is working, and she's exhausted. And how dare my sister Mary just sit at the feet of Jesus? She's not doing anything. Martha comes up, complains to Jesus. And Jesus tells Martha, you know what? Mary is fine where she is. She has chosen the good portion. She needs to sit and she needs to rest right now. She needs to receive right now. And the same is true for all of us in varying degrees. We all need to have a time where we're fed where we sit at the feet of Jesus and enjoy his company. We need to spend time benefiting from being in his presence or being with his people and growing together. Some of us are so incredibly busy that, that we are running on fumes. In fact, we ran out of gas a long time ago. How we're even making it, who knows? And We need to sit at the feet of Jesus and be fed. For some, in, in profoundly overwhelming circumstances, that's all we can even do right now. We are in a season that, that, that where we're just too depleted, too exhausted, too frustrated, too raw to give much of anything. And my hope for us here at Grace Community Church, we, we're, we're not a, a massive church, right? Is that is that as we think through how we do church, we're being very intentional not to exhaust you. 
that we can try to work on the division of labor in such a way that, that there is time for anyone to come here and receive because we want this to be a place where you can just come and sit at the feet of Jesus and learn from him and, and be encouraged by him. That's the kind of place that we want to be. To the extent that that's happening for you, that, that, that's good. We're, we're, we're trying to do that. But having said that, after experiencing the hope of the resurrection and being encouraged by that, Jesus sends Mary out. This person grieving over the loss of Jesus now gets to go and minister to others, grieving over the loss of Jesus. Go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and to your God. You know how that would have landed with those guys? These guys who abandoned Jesus and for Jesus to say, yeah, my God and your God. My Father and your Father. Mary gets the privilege of getting to tell these men that their Savior, their Lord, their King is alive. And they are children of God by virtue of what he accomplished. Mary is now given the opportunity to minister out of her pain. Mary knows what it's like to experience loss, and she's given the opportunity to serve hurting people with the same type of encouragement and love that we have received from Jesus. As the power of the resurrection becomes increasingly real to me in the midst of my pain and loss, I get the opportunity, the privilege tell you about what God's done in my life. That's why we do testimonies here, so we can hear what God is doing, so that it might encourage us all as we struggle for the journey ahead. It's also why at the end of our service, we have the dismissal, the dismissal which says, we have been with Jesus, and we have been encouraged by him, and, and, and now we are propelled forward to go and love and serve him, whatever that may look like in your particular calling. That doesn't diminish the pain. That doesn't get rid of the pain. It doesn't, pain doesn't gloss over it. doesn't pretend it doesn't exist. The scars are still there. And it doesn't just redeem it in some nice, pretty little bow. But at least from, from what Paul says, Paul, the Apostle Paul, 1 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. There's something beautiful about the community of faith Encouraging and comforting each other. As I said in the night of Maundy Thursday, in this sense, I want to walk softly, I want you to hear me right on this. When we love and serve one another in ways that are, you know, counterintuitive, cost, we are, we're not being Jesus in some salvific sense, but you are pointing people to the risen Christ. And you are being his hands and feet empowered by his spirit right now to love and serve each other. I need that from you. We need that from each other. And so may God use us. Use us as conduits and instruments of his grace as we experience the 
joys and celebrations of life as we embrace and, and experience the struggles of life as well. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, I, I pray that, that as we've reflected here this morning, it has been an encouragement that you are the God of all comfort. And, Father, that our pain, um, the matters that we experience, what we faced, um, we, we can't, we don't just bring that, we, we don't just come in here and not bring that stuff with us. But, Father, as, as you've said through your Apostle Paul, as we grieve, Father, may we do so uh, as people with hope. And use us, Father, for the sake of one another, to be your hands and feet, loving and serving one another. Help us. All this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.